protests in Cuba. I mean, I wasn't surprised that a public protest happened, but rather I was a bit surprised by the scale of it. Ransomware on the rise. If they're having no trouble finding victims, it means that cybersecurity still isn't where it needs to be for, for companies and organisations across the spectrum. Overhauling Australia's foreign influence laws. So I think there was a degree of fair-mindedness involved and a desire not to be seen to be targeting any particular individual organisation country. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Earlier this month, Cuban citizens took to the streets across the country to protest against deteriorating living conditions amidst the country's economic and coronavirus crisis. Aspie's David Angle was previously Australian ambassador to Mexico. He speaks with Professor Adrian Hearn about the protests and their political significance, the impact of social media and the government response. Adrian, thanks for being on this Aspie podcast. My pleasure, David. Good to be with you. Now, you've been following developments in Cuba for over two decades. You first arrived in the country as a student in the year 2000, and you've visited many times since. You've got many Cuban friends and contacts. And given that background and the deep knowledge of the country that you have, how much of a surprise to you were the recent protests? And given that they've been so quickly suppressed, how do you assess their political significance and the Cuban government standing with the Cuban people now? Oh, that's a great question, David. I mean, I wasn't surprised that a public protest happened, but rather I was a bit surprised by the scale of it. I first observed a protest in Cuba of around 100 people in 2001 over the arrest of someone for illegally selling souvenirs to tourists. And, uh, you know, as I wrote shortly afterwards when I did my first book on Cuba, and this is a quote, Organized protest is not an unthinkable avenue for expressing collective dissent. So in a sense, I'd seen you know protests happen before. But the other thing to keep in mind here is that contrary to many, I think, foreign depictions and understandings, Cubans are actually not afraid to raise their voices. And you see this in the monthly meetings called the Rendicion de Cuentas, which is a place where the local councillor, a bit like a local mayor, takes questions from the public. And in one that I attended, the neighbors were so upset by, you know, I think it was the accumulation of rubbish in the local streets that people ended up shouting, este gobierno no sirve, which means this government is useless. And I I remember someone shouting, Fidel y lo suyo es un descarado, which means Fidel Castro and his government are vagabonds. So, you know, people are accustomed to saying these things openly, but What was different, I think, this time around, just this month, was the scale of the protest. This was thousands of people across several cities. And another difference is that was the government's response, you know, a really firm hand to shut them down. So where does this leave the Cuban government's reputation? I'd say that it leaves it in a new light, because really now the hard edge of state coercion has been made visible, which is something people are not accustomed to seeing. Well, as you've written, in part because of COVID-19, Cuba's economy is currently in a far worse shape than it's been since the so-called special period. 
when it nosedived following the Soviet Union's collapse and the loss of its subsidies and trade preferences. Now, given that economic hardship looks to be a key element in the protests, how much of this is a function of COVID as opposed to more underlying systemic issues? And how likely is the government's efforts at rectifying them? Yeah, I think your question raises a distinction between political and economic drivers of the protest. I've been asking friends and colleagues in Cuba about this, and I think both of those dimensions are important. Politically, you know, despite the examples I just gave, there is still a sense in Cuba that freedom of speech, for instance, to criticize the government and so on, brings negative consequences. So for instance, it might damage your prospects for employment or promotion you know, in a state enterprise. So that's a real concern for many people. And then economically, Cuba's economy has contracted by about 11% over the past year. And behind this economic contraction, I think there are two factors at play. One of them is COVID. And Cuba's latest official numbers are around 300,000 total cases and around 2,000 deaths. And COVID has basically stopped tourism. And as you know, you just look around the Australian region, you see that places like Fiji and the Pacific Islands rely on tourism very much as Cuba does. And it's really devastating for those countries if all of a sudden that tap is turned off. The other economic factor is remittances, which means money sent to Cuba by relatives in the US. And you'd know, David, as former ambassador to Mexico, that communities and families across Central America and the Caribbean depend on remittances from relatives in the US. And I hate to think what would happen if those remittances were cut off. Well, in Cuba, they have been cut off by Donald Trump. Prior to Trump doing that, the remittances amounted to about $3.5 billion each year in cash. And uh, a recent study shows that about 50% of Cubans in Miami were sending money every month to their relatives. And this went directly into the hands of Cuban families. So cutting this off has had a, you know, a really big impact. It's really increased the pressure. So I'd say political and economic factors both drove the protests, but in different ways. We'll come back to the US issue in a minute. One aspect of what's been going on it seems to be related to the loosening of the state's control over information that's been occurring over the last two decades or so, particularly in more recent times. Access to technology, Wi-Fi access, for example, that seems to have really grown in more recent times. How much of what's happened has had to do with Cubans having greater access to information technology and, for example, social media platforms? Yeah, I think it's had a lot to do with it. You know, I remember when I was living there, you know, between 2000 and about 2015 or so, I used to live right on the edge of Barrio Chino, the Chinatown, because I was studying China-Cuba relations at that point. And I used to go walking past this park where there was, it was always pretty deserted. There was no real reason for anyone out to hang out there. But then in 2016, I noticed people were more and more congregating there, and it was, became a bustling place. And the reason for that is because it became one of the internet hotspots that the Cuban government authorized. So in 2016 is when the hotspots were authorized. And then by 2018, the government also authorized 3G phone internet access, you know, so people could have it on their smartphones. And it's not a restricted form of the internet. It's completely unrestricted. This is a really big deal in Cuba. 
now people can send messages overseas or within the country completely uninhibited. Uh, and there's no doubt that social media communications facilitated this month's protests. Of course, the government reacted by curtailing that access for a short period of time because it perceived, I think, that things might get out of hand. So to answer the question, absolutely, internet access and mobile phone social media has become part of daily life and had a lot to do with this. Well, returning to the US theme, the government in Cuba has been quick to accuse the US of inciting the riots. And of course, the Biden administration was equally quick to refute that. But the ploy of blaming the US for Cuba's problem seems to have had some resonance amongst Cubans in the past, in part because Washington has given them plenty of reasons to feel victimized. They've imposed embargoes of various sorts on Cuba since the 1960s. But how much resonance does that message now have? Yeah, well, you know, it's well known in Cuba among ordinary people and among officials too, you know, that blaming the US embargo for everything is a superficial explanation. And this is talked about publicly. I recall a newspaper with a cartoon on the front cover of a man lying in bed next to an angry woman. And she's saying in a speech bubble, don't tell me that your erectile dysfunction is also the fault of the US embargo. And it's sort of making fun of this, you know, this, this tendency to blame everything on the embargo, sort of a Cuban sense of humor, a uniquely Cuban way of putting it. I mean, that said, the embargo does have a real effect. And I've seen this firsthand, uh, you know, in various ways. In the port of Mariel, for example, which I think you and I, David, visited as part of a delegation in 2016. You know, Cuba's trying to attract foreign investors to build up that port as a special economic zone. After we visited it, I then discussed the Mariel project with two Chinese investors who had considered investing there to build tractors and manufacture farm machinery. And they both said that they wouldn't pursue that opportunity until the embargo was dropped. And the reason for that is that they required access to capital goods and inputs from the US. And they also aspired to put some of these products into the US you know, to make their project financially viable. So it's just one example of how the embargo is having an effect. Now, I don't think most Cubans are actually informed about these impacts. So to answer your question, I think most Cubans are naturally suspicious when they hear officials say, usually in a very general way, that the US embargo is the root cause of Cuba's difficulties. You've written, too, that Cubans were buoyed by the election of Biden and the hope that his administration would resume the Obama administration's more relaxed policies towards Cuba. So far, that's not happened, and the suppression of dissent won't have encouraged it. But where do you see things heading from here, both in Cuba and in terms of its relations with the United States? Yeah, well, thankfully, for the time being, the calls have died down from some Cuban-Americans, like the mayor of Miami, Francisco Suarez, for the US to directly intervene in Cuba, which he did say when the protests were going on. But a friend in Havana wrote to me just the other day in, in which he wrote a text message to me in which he compared the current situation to the 1990s after the Soviet Union collapsed, which the Cuban government called the special period. And this is what he wrote. Here in Cuba, the memory of the special period is present like a ghost. Though it seems things won't get so bad this time, Biden's victory is giving us hope in a resumption of the friendly policies of Obama's final years. 
Now, I mean, Biden said that he would reverse Trump's policy on the remittances that I mentioned before, cutting off that three and a half billion dollars a year. Uh, but Biden has not yet done that. I noticed, though, that just yesterday, Biden announced a new task force to consider how his administration might reopen remittances to Cuba. And I think they're mainly looking at how they can do that while ensuring that none of that money goes you know, to the Cuban government, but rather directly into the hands of normal people. Well, finally, what do you think Australia should be doing with regard to this question? Yeah, I think, you know, engaging in small projects to build relationships in Cuba is a wise move so that if the embargo is eventually lifted, Australia will be in a good position to engage. That could be in tourism development. It might be in oil and nickel mining, which already there are several Australian companies doing in Cuba. could be around solar energy projects and more broadly, urban development. The Australian government through DFAT has maintained positive relations with Cuba over the years. In 2012, AusAid ran a program with the Cuban Ministry of Health to cooperate in the Pacific Islands. Then in 2016, Andrew Robb organized a mission that you and I joined, and that was followed up with a visit by Julie Bishop when she was foreign minister. And DFAT has also funded two urban food security projects in Cuba, which I've been involved in. The latest one of these is directly purchasing and delivering urban farming equipment, a farm just outside of Havana. So I think these small projects are a smart move because they maintain relationships in small and simple ways so that we're in a position to engage more, I guess, more comprehensively if and when the embargo is finally lifted. Thanks again, Adrian, for joining us on the podcast today. And I want to thank you in particular for being the first to introduce the theme of erectile dysfunction to an HP <laughs> podcast. Yeah, as I said, it's a uniquely, uh, well, maybe not so uniquely Cuban problem, but a uniquely Cuban way of talking about it. <laughs> thanks. thanks. Thanks again, Adrian. In the wake of the targeted attacks on Microsoft Exchange servers, Australia's own cybersecurity vulnerabilities are increasingly being highlighted. Fergus Hansen speaks to Rachel Falk and Anne-Louise Brown on the Microsoft Exchange hack, as well as the growing frequency of ransomware crimes in Australia, and how the Australian government can help better protect communities and businesses. Rachel and Louise, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. We've had some big news today, uh, an attribution from dozens of states that the Chinese government has been attributed to this attack on the Microsoft Exchange system and we've had accusations that the actors, the contractors or the affiliates of the MSS front companies have been conducting even ransomware attacks. So in a situation where you've got a nation state conducting ransomware attacks, there's nothing that you can do in a law enforcement sense to stop that type of ransomware. So what is it that you can actually do to deal with that? So yeah, actually today is big news. It's over 30 countries have come together to call out and attribute this conduct, Microsoft Exchange hack and also other activities to China's state security agency. So that is huge in terms of a development In terms of what can be done, look, the world's not going to change tomorrow as a result of this attribution, but what really can be done is calling out this behaviour and behaviour of state-sponsored or state-supported actors is big, and it's not just China, it's other countries that do this as well. And in real terms in law enforcement, as the US have done in the past, they've had indictments, they've named individuals, but those individuals are not going to step foot in US soil anytime soon. You can indict who you want, it's not going to change that. All it's doing is, again, it's a political act, 
of calling out the behaviour and, in this case, the egregious behaviour, not just of ransomware but of Microsoft Exchange. And I think one of the really interesting things that came out of this event as well and what President Biden said and what the US have said in their statement in relation to the US will be taking any steps that are reasonably necessary to protect US citizens. And so while that doesn't necessarily point directly to offensive cyber activities, there could be, you know, I guess a, a move more towards that from the US, especially in light of what Biden had said to Putin in relation to, or had signalled in relation to targeting servers in Russia. Well, just on that, the fact that we've got the President of the United States talking about ransomware, now we've got 30 states accusing another country of conducting ransomware attacks. Has this become such a problem for business, for our economies, that it's risen to this level that national leaders have to start raising this as an issue? Has there been this sort of gravitational shift where this has become so big that it's risen up to that level? Or is this just a a one-off sort of political signal and it's a slow news day? Well, I think it's a bit of both. It certainly is a big issue. Ransomware is a big threat. And part of it is, I think, the clear message too, government can't solve this problem for businesses. Businesses have to take responsibility. So part of it is calling out the behaviour and bringing it out into the sunlight so it normalises it a bit. But I think it's also come to a point where, as ransomware, I think, is just a, a point in time to demonstrate that if they're having no trouble finding victims, it means that cyber security still isn't where it needs to be for for companies and organisations across the spectrum. So it's a bit of both, but I think definitely it's the country saying, we believe this is a big threat. It's threatening national security. It's threatening critical infrastructure. So like with Colonial Pipeline, you could hit one of our large organisations. It can have a huge knock-on effect for fuel supply across the east coast of the US. So it just, I think, is bigger than any other threat en masse that we've seen before when it comes to cyber. Is it a bit unusual too in the sense that Normally in this industry you sort of say, well, if it's a, an activity to generate money, it's probably cyber criminals, and if it's trying to steal intellectual property or conduct espionage, it's probably a nation state. But here we have an attribution to a, effectively a group linked to a nation state conducting ransomware attacks for money. Is that sort of a new development in the sense that we've now got this blurring of these of the commercial and the state-linked activities? It's a little bit of a new development if you believe that the contract hackers are doing it sort of moonlighting and using it for their own personal profit. That is a development because it's sort of not within the sort of standard accepted norms for... It's certainly not espionage, so it is a new development. And then it's also that sort of, I think, the calling out of nation states potentially turning a blind eye and allowing and tolerances within countries around what criminal behaviour they will accept and allow to flourish and I think that's a bit like with Russia too is the Putin and Biden sort of conversation around what are you going to let tolerate in your society and what criminal conduct will you let flourish and what will you call to action and have criminal charges for? I think too at the heart of this and ransomware attacks as well is disruption and disruption in whatever form it comes in can be hugely damaging to a country and so if you've got sort of mass disruption in the form of ransomware attacks occurring then that in itself is weaponized in a way. You've both written this really fantastic report for us on ransomware and I wanted to just get you to see if you could give me a description of what ransomware is for somebody that may not understand what ransomware is. And could you walk us through and give us a sense of what it's like for a company that's been hit with ransomware? What's the look and feel inside that company for a victim of a ransomware attack? 
Sure. So at its very essence, ransomware is malicious software, but it is directly targeted. So it's a criminal organisation that targets a victim organisation, will do their homework and work out the best way into that organisation, even if it's through a vulnerability in a system having been patched or stolen credentials. They'll find their way in through either clicking on a link or, again, accessing through stolen credentials into the organisation. They'll take a good look around. They'll work out what systems are ones that the company needs to function so that they are able to have leverage and start to lock them up, take a copy, that's the extortion element, take a copy, and then let the company know that they have encrypted key data and they've got a time frame within which to pay ransom and they've also taken a copy so that if they decide not to pay, they will then start to leak that data on the dark web. Just in terms of what it's like for a company, I was speaking to an organisation yesterday, everything goes into fast movement pretty quickly. They have to work out what's been stolen. They Obviously, they're under. my understanding is they're under no illusions it's ransomware because like the front cover of our report, there's a big splash strip screen that comes up with the skull and crossbones, but they're also told what's been taken and they're given a snippet. Um, more worryingly for companies is when they're given a snippet of personal information, say employee information or customer information that's been stolen. They then have to work out what's been stolen, can they function or not, and then the lawyers get involved pretty quickly. Do they pay a ransom? Is that something they can afford to pay? Remembering ransoms might start at a few hundred thousand and go right up to millions. Is that something they can pay? Can they get hold of Bitcoin? Do they believe it's legal or not? So they'll get legal advice. They may also talk to the Australian Cyber Security Centre. And more often than not, they engage private cyber security experts that help them not only work out what's been stolen, but in some cases deal with the hackers because they don't necessarily want to deal with the hackers directly. And working out that whole dance in between or whether they won't pay. If you've got seven days to pay, it's a pretty condensed, pretty intense seven days to work out what you're going to do. Lots of board meetings, consents lawyers and finding out exactly what's been stolen is a pretty intense time. And so we see a lot of the time in the media reporting on these incidents that there's very sophisticated attacks that they're under, they're up against this adversary that seems to be you know, almost unbeatable because they've got just fantastic technical skills. Is that the case that these companies are up against an adversary that's just too hard to beat? No. The only thing that's hard to beat here is the encryption often, that you won't be able to decrypt your data. No, this is standard garden variety services that can be bought. These are not necessarily sophisticated attacks. I do have a little bit of an issue with the companies that go out with that narrative. It's not that. It's just that they more often than not have, in some cases, pretty poor cyber security practices. Not always, but in some cases have been meaning to get to them and they haven't got to them yet. But make no mistake, this isn't necessarily nation-state, zero-day exploit stuff. This is stuff that's e-crime, you can buy it off the dark web. And simply, I think, dressing it up as a, something you were being faced with a sophisticated adversary that threw something at you nobody had seen before is not entirely as I understand ransomware. So I think companies have to be very careful about the narrative they run publicly when it comes to ransomware. And as the report points out as well, it is a game of numbers when it comes down to it. And so a cyber criminal sends out 100 emails. All that group needs is for one person to click on one dodgy link and that can, you know, be the keys to the castle, essentially. So your report has lots of recommendations in it about what we can do about this ransomware epidemic. What is it that we can do practically, whether it's government, business, civil society groups to deal with this? 
So on a practical level, companies really need to take cybersecurity seriously. Get a cybersecurity assessment done, you know, start to do multi-factor authentication patch. Really strongly recommend to organisations if you haven't done a cybersecurity audit of your assets and your people, as in how well-trained your people are, that is top priority and every company should be on notice that that impacts them. So that's a real practical thing that companies can do because if they don't have a relationship with a cybersecurity company now, they certainly don't want to be swapping cards in the middle of a breach. So it's a really important thing to start a relationship with a cyber company and like CyberCX, you can sort of CrowdStrike, Mandiant, which is now FireEye. There's a whole bunch of companies out there that you need to get to know so that they can help you assess how effectively you're managing cyber risk. I think breaking it down in terms of the report and it really to sum it up in three points, I guess it's, you know, clarity and there is a role for the government there to play in terms of clarity regarding the legality of ransomware payment, transparency in reporting so that the whole ecosystem can have a good idea of the lay of the land, education as really goes to the heart of what Rachel said, and incentivisation. So make it worthwhile for companies to uplift their cybersecurity. Throw them a bone. The carrot's better than the stick. Rachel and Louise, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Finally, Peter Jennings is joined by Daniel Ward to discuss his latest ASPE report, Losing Our Agnosticism, How to Make Australia's Foreign Influence Laws Work. It's a pleasure to be talking to Daniel Ward, author of Losing Our Agnosticism, How to Make Australia's Foreign Influence Laws Work. Daniel, welcome. Thank you very much, Peter. You cut straight to the point in your executive summary, and I thought a good place to start would be for me to simply to quote your first few lines. Here you say, country agnosticism, under which Australia's laws treat all foreign influence efforts in the same way, regardless of their source country is the key failing of Australia's statutory response to foreign governments' influence activities. It has imposed sweeping, unnecessary regulatory costs. It has caused waste of taxpayer-funded enforcement resources. It has diverted those resources from issues that really matter, and it has brought unnecessary legal complexity. So you're not hiding what you think about the impact of country agnosticism, Daniel. The legal framework that you're talking about here really relates to two laws passed in the last few years. There's the 2018 Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act, which is widely known as the FITS Act, which was passed by the Turnbull government. And then there's the 2020 Australia's Foreign Relations, brackets, State and Territory Arrangements, brackets, Act of 2020. Can you talk our audience through what those two acts are designed to do. Sure thing. So in 2018, against the backdrop of media reports about Chinese Communist Party influence in Australia, the Turnbull government passed three acts, as it turns out. One of these was the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act, which is one of the two acts, which is the focus of the paper. Broadly speaking, under that act, If you engage in certain activities in Australia on behalf of a foreign government-related entity, that being either a foreign government itself or some other entity connected with a foreign government, then you need to register that activity on a public register. And those activities are activities undertaken for the purpose of influencing Australia's politics, political opinion in Australia, decisions of government, and so on. 
So that's loosely modelled on the American Foreign Agents Registration Act. That it's the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act. Also passed that year separately was an update to Australia's espionage and foreign interference laws. And that's not the topic that we're discussing today, Peter, because we, I think, are going to draw the same distinction that the Australian government draws between influence and interference. Interference being another kettle of fish involving things like bribing officials, etc. Separately, there was also a law that banned foreign political donations. Again, that's not the topic today. So that was the what was done in 2018. Then if you fast forward to 2020, against the backdrop of some widespread commentary about the Victorian government's relationship with the Belt and Road Initiative of the Chinese Communist Party, the Morrison government passed a law under which state entities, state governments and their entities, including universities, have to register their arrangements with foreign government entities, with DFAT, with the Federal Department, and if those arrangements contravene Australia's foreign policy, then they can be cancelled. And that indeed is what has occurred in relation to two agreements that the Victorian government had with the Chinese Communist Party. So it's been a busy period of lawmaking. And as you've said already, a clear Australian concern was the People's Republic of China. It wasn't Canada, it wasn't Costa Rica. Why do you think government at the time, both in 2018 and in 2020, pursued the idea of country agnosticism when it came to drafting these laws? I think it had very good intentions, indeed only the best of intentions. One reason I suspect is Australians' innate suspicion of singling out anyone in particular in a scheme that's meant to apply broadly we're very fair-minded and I think there was a fair-minded sense that we would adopt an approach that treated everybody the same in the same way that a lot of our other laws treat everybody the same. And so what was done was to adopt what's been called a country agnostic approach where, for example, under the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme, it doesn't matter what country you're advocating the interests of, you have to register in exactly the same way as anybody else. So If I want to promote a particular line on behalf of a British state-owned enterprise, then I have to register just as I have to do the same if I do that on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. So I think there was a degree of fair-mindedness involved and a desire not to be seen to be targeting any particular individual organisation country. I guess also, and understandably enough, a willingness or a hope that if one was not mentioning China specifically, that would not then lead to, you know, a direct negative reaction on the part of Beijing. And yet I guess what has become clearer in 2021 in the post-COVID environment is that China clearly regards itself as being the target of this legislation and has complained about it as such in the 14-point grievance list that their embassy released a few months back. So let's let's just talk about what perhaps some of the unintended consequences were of taking the, the country agnostic approach. You've said that it gives rise to additional regulatory cost and that it gives rise to unnecessary use of 
taxpayers' funds to pursue enforcement measures. Can you sort of unpack those two thoughts a little bit and tell us what that really means in terms of the actual management of these laws? Well, the key thing to appreciate, Peter, is that when you draft these laws and when you enforce them, you're now enforcing them because they're country agnostic against everybody, no matter what degree of actual significance the conduct has. So you mentioned regulatory burdens. Let's take the Foreign Relations Act, which is the one under which arrangements with foreign countries are able to be cancelled by the foreign minister. That now requires local municipalities in Australia to register their sister city arrangements with municipalities the world over. So if there's an arrangement with a Canadian city, a French city, an American city, a British city, those sister city arrangements now need to be registered by the local government. And that has a cost. The local government has to go through various bureaucratic hoops in order to enter and pursue those kinds of arrangements. And as I think we can all probably agree, there actually isn't any conceivable interest in regulating those arrangements, and yet regulated they are. So that's the regulatory burden side of this. You also mentioned a taxpayer enforcement resources being wasted. It's really the flip side. If we again go to the sister city arrangements that I just mentioned, when a DFAT official spends time scrutinising a sister city arrangement with a city in a liberal democracy, that's time that that official does not spend on arrangements that might be of more interest and might require greater scrutiny. Similarly, under the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act, the Attorney General's Department, which administers that act, has spent time, and this is on the public record, pursuing a former Prime Minister in relation to interviews given to a state broadcaster in a liberal democracy, purely because the state broadcaster is a government entity, even though it operates independently under its charter. Now, that's a waste of taxpayer-funded resources, i.e. the time of Attorney General's Department bureaucrats. Well, as John Anderson says, John Anderson, former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia, the crux of the problem is that the laws deny the crux of the problem, which is that some countries by their actions demand a prioritised level of scrutiny and others do not. And I guess we should say that's not necessarily exclusively China. That could be Russia, it could be Iran. There might be a few countries whose influencing activities we would want to track carefully in Australia. But China is by far the largest source of current Australian government concern. Daniel, your solution to this problem is to talk about the need to amend the laws to develop a tiered approach. What do you mean by that? In my view, the way around the problems that we've discussed is to call a spade a spade and acknowledge that certain kinds of foreign government, not just the Chinese Communist Party, others as well, are authoritarian governments which means that their sources of influence in Australia are spread more widely and are more difficult to detect and require greater regulation as a result than other kinds of governments, than democratic governments. It's not hard to reveal British government influence peddling in Australia. It's much harder to reveal it when it comes from an authoritarian jurisdiction. 
And so these laws should apply different standards to those different kinds of influence. Greater regulation should apply in relation to influence coming from authoritarian jurisdictions than applies in relation to democratic jurisdictions. Daniel, thanks for applying such common sense backed up with a little bit of legal nous to help us understand these issues. It, it does seem to me increasingly this is a story of the democracies versus the authoritarian systems and the need for Australia and other democracies to have legal frameworks which acknowledge that and enable appropriate decisions to be taken. And I'm really grateful to you for providing this piece of work for our audience because I think it sets out very clearly what needs to happen in order to strengthen Australia's legal framework. So once again, thanks very much for appearing with us today. Thank you very much for having me, Peter. That's a wrap on this episode. Our guests this week were Professor Adrian Hearn, Professor in Latin American Studies, Languages and Linguistics at the University of Melbourne, Rachel Falk, CEO of the Cybersecurity Cooperative Research Centre, Anne-Louise Brown, Director of Corporate Affairs at the Cybersecurity Cooperative Research Centre, and Daniel Ward, Visiting Fellow at ASPE. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.